and welcome to episode 72 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox with me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Doing good. Thanks for uh, doing today's show an hour earlier than normal. Um, hope that didn't put you in traffic or anything like that. No, it's it's noon here, so it's a great time to come in. Perfect. On today's show, we have a whole bunch of letters from listeners. We have uh, some logical reasoning from the June 2007 test. And we have, uh, maybe we could start, Ben. You have an update on uh, that student of yours who went over on the writing sample. I, I was speculating last time that they might end up getting their entire score canceled, which would be ridiculous. But do you know what happened? So I don't know the final outcome, but I did think that this update was somewhat humorous given LSAC's, um, I don't know, tendencies to be very uh, unclear and uh, skit- skittish, I guess, about how it communicates with students. But basically he wrote them and said, hey, look, I got a violation in relation to the writing sample, which has no effect on my score. So I was hoping that the violation might not be associated with the score directly, but either removed or noted some other way. I, you know, he was trying his best to get the asterisks uh, removed or whatever. And they actually wrote back a, a couple emails to his uh, original argument saying that, quote, you might or might not get a letter from us explaining what we'll do. So, <laughs> Wow. I thought that was funny. Then he did get a letter. He ended up getting a letter a couple weeks later, which sounded like it had a lot of boilerplate, which basically, basically said we take infractions very seriously and you signed something at the beginning of the test indicating that you had read the rules. But we probably won't pursue this issue in your case, any further, and may only decide to note it if there is an incident in future testing. So if he violates the rules again, it sounds like they might bring up this violation, but they might not bring up this violation in this case. The resounding theme here, though, is that it's unclear what will happen. <laughs> so wow. he doesn't know until he gets his score back, but they said they might not pursue it uh, in any case. So he's waiting to see what will happen, and that's that. That response is just a lot like, well, we can do whatever we want, so we're just going to reserve the right to do whatever we want. Yeah. Thanks for playing. (laughs) And we're not even going to tell you that we're going to stick with our guns or anything. We're just going to do whatever. I mean, it's amazing that they even respond. They like responded with a complete non-response. Yeah. Just, yeah, we may or may not do anything at all but yeah yeah good thanks for writing (laughs) (laughs) awesome i guess we could go right into these two emails um we have two pretty much identical stories i guess huh in the in the end I, i thought at first they were two different problems with accommodations but uh, it looks like it's only one. Did we mention this last time or did I think maybe not? I think the, the first email came in like right after we recorded the last episode. Does that sound right? None of this made it into the podcast last time, I think. To be honest, I don't remember. Okay. But yeah. 
I, I think, as I recall, it's like these these emails came in just immediately right when we recorded a couple weeks ago. And um, so the uh, emails, I'm going to take the names out of them. And uh, these are related to getting accommodations. Here they go. Hi, my name is uh, Redacted, and I'm writing to you because I really need some advice. Uh, I'm sure you're very busy, but the situation I found myself in, according to my extensive Google searches, has never happened before in the history of the LSAT. Well, I mean, it would be hard to prove that that had never happened before. But anyway, um, this listener can't find any evidence that this has happened before. So here's the story. I took the September LSAT a few weeks ago with accommodations, and my proctor told me I did not have to take the fifth section, despite my questioning him several times about this. After the fourth section, he collected the book, gave me my writing sample, and when I finished that, he told me I was finished. Today, I received an email from LSAC. This uh, listener attached it. We're not going to read the whole uh, email from the LSAC. But basically, here's what happened. And this happened twice, because this the, the exact same thing happened uh, with a student, actually, of mine, um, a uh, classroom and uh, private tutoring student of mine. Same exact thing. She's uh, She gets accommodated, uh, time and a half. She shows up, and the proctor gave her the test. The test had five sections in it, but the proctor wouldn't let her do the fifth section. And the letter from the LSAC is, or the response from the LSAC is basically, uh, oh yeah, sorry, um, no, we are making the accommodated students take the fifth section now. Uh, the, the experimental section, you, you, you do have to do all five sections. We're sorry that our proctor gave you the wrong instructions. We would uh, allow you to, uh, we are canceling your score. There's nothing we could do about it. We can't give you a score because you didn't take all five sections. So what we're going to do is we're going to cancel it with a note in your file that says basically it's our fault. And then we're going to give you a free retake <laughs> in, <laughs> in either December or February. Yeah. So wait, is that what, that's not the response that the first person got, right? The first person got a more harsh response. No. I thought that was basically it. I mean, maybe not quite so much of a mea culpa from the LSAC, but it was basically like, oh, yeah, sorry, we'll let you retake it for free. So uh, so these two students are going to end up with a cancellation on their record? Well, that that I'm is unclear whether this is going to be a canceled score. I would be very curious whether this counts as one of their three attempts. It certainly mm-hmm. should not count as one of their three attempts. No, I think it's going to be more like an. I, I believe I read something in the note that it was like an administrative cancel or something. Hmm. Yeah, the point I think is simply LSAC made this change and didn't really instruct their proctors very well. Yeah. And one thing that we should clarify here is that the experimental section can be fifth, but it's not always fifth. So I'm really confused by why the proctors thought that if someone was not going to do the experimental section, that they should somehow just not do the fifth section. I'm guessing that the instructions just said something like, well, wait a second. No, the, the wording, it was actually, when I saw it the first time, 
it made sense to me how the proctor could could uh, mistakenly read it wrong. Mm. Right. <laughs> so in this email from uh, the, this is the second one we heard about. It says the proctor instructed her that there would be no omitted variable section. <laughs> so, oh but, my gosh. Let's give him a double negative. <laughs> you need to be scoring at least a 170 on the LSAT to proctor the LSAT. I, my guess, I mean, that that's you, you could see how that could happen, right? Oh, that's very confusing. There will be no There's variable no, section omitted. <laughs> yeah, there, well, right, because they're used to omitting the variable section for yeah. uh, for uh, accommodated students, but now there's going to be no omitted variable oh, the, section. Oh, no omitted. No <laughs> omitted variable section. Oh, man, those people. Uh, well, I, I mean, don't know what's, what's wrong with them. That's seriously, you can just read it twice. That could be that could be from Chris's email. I mean, I don't know that that's actually how it was in the proctor. We don't have the proctor instructions, but that's uh, that's yeah. in, that's in Chris's email. And if I but I could certainly see if that's what the instructions to the proctor said. I can certainly see how the proctor would oh, get it that wrong. Would be very confusing. Case, yeah, you would say, "Oh, no variable section." Okay, got it. No, no, it's no omitted variable section. <laughs> so that means there <laughs> is a variable section. Yeah. Uh, point is. Both of these, I believe both of these uh, accommodated students did receive instructions from the LSAC in advance, which it seems like they did not read, that uh, instructed them that they would be doing all five sections of the test. Well, maybe it, maybe it instructed them in that way. Right, exactly, that there would be no omitted variable section. I, I think he's quoting that because I don't think he could have, not that he couldn't have made that up, but I don't think he would have. That's just not how you talk. Right. I, I agree. Anyway, and it se- it actually seems like the first writer pushed back on the proctor. So maybe the first writer actually did read all the instructions and knew that she was going to be taking all five sections. And she pushed back on the proctor and the proctor said no and took the test away from her and said, nope, you're not doing the fifth section. And of course, uh, yeah, I guess it's as it turns out, the fifth section was not the variable section. If it was the variable section, then I guess they could just say, oh, okay, our bad. Yeah, but we can still give you a score because you did all the four scored sections. But if yeah, the fifth section was one of the, the sections that was supposed to count, then yeah, I mean, they, I, I'm wondering, I mean, if they pushed back and said, hey, listen, LSAC, this was your fault. I'm trying to apply early. I want to do these early decision programs. And now because of your error, I'm not going to be able to take, I'm not going to be able to apply early decision. I would hope that the LSAC would figure out a way to accommodate them. It seems all they'd have to do is pay a proctor for one hour of time and set aside a, you know, just have them go do that section. But I don't know, maybe they feel like we can't do that because scores are about to be released and, you know, the test is going to be out there in the wild and it's too late or something. I don't know. I think so. When we had the the snowmageddon or whatever you want to call it a few years ago here, there was so much snow. A lot of test centers had to be closed down. So I remember, I think Georgetown uh, University did have their test on. It was this was in February. It was a few years ago, and uh, some other schools did not have their test. Or I might get I might be getting that backward. But the point is, is that. Uh, LSAC contacted the people who had been scheduled to go to test centers that ended up getting shut down because of the snow. And they said to them, hey, 
you're going to take the test again, or you're going to have the opportunity to take the test in a week. And some people, it was two weeks. So they basically had another week or two weeks of studying. But when they went and took it, they took a test that was different from the test that everyone else ended up taking. And I think the rationale is as soon as this test is starts being administered, uh, we really need to keep the, the window of time. Because they're worried about cheating. Yeah. I mean, even if the test isn't released, people leave and they're like, oh, that horrible, you know, fourth game or whatever. And some people remember enough about the game that they can help other people. So I think if they're not willing to do that within a week, you know, it's too late. Yeah. uh, Boy, this is a bummer. These students, if they were planning on applying early, uh, that is not happening anymore. Uh, they probably are going to have to continue to study for the LSAT, um, take it again in early December, possibly consider waiting another application cycle if they really wanted to apply early. Uh, It also makes it so that they only have one crack at it now, right? They don't get a backup test date anymore, um, at least not for Mm -hmm. 2017 admission. So this turns out pretty bad for these students. And it's funny, but it's also, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like gallows humor a little bit for these kids because that sucks. <laughs> that's that's terrible. Yeah. And yeah. then their response is like, oh, yeah, we'll let you take it again for free. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit like a free kick in the nuts. You know, it's like, well, you already had one miserable day. And now you're going to have to have another miserable day because of our error. But at least we won't charge you for it because we're magnanimous. Anyhow, um, that's that. Do we have anything else to say about that? No, uh, but the, the news is loud and clear. If you're getting accommodations, chances are very good that you have to take all oh, yeah, five that's, seconds. You know, they changed the policy. They, <clears throat> they changed the policy, but they didn't do a very good job of letting everybody know. I mean, that caught me by surprise. Sounds like it caught you by surprise, too. Or, you know, maybe maybe you found you yeah. started hearing out about it like a week before the test, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Well, you remember that email that I had from that student who had double time? His email basically came back and it was super convoluted because it was talking about the history of <laughs> the practice of not giving the variable section. But now all students would be required to have the variable section, which would seem to clarify that this particular student who had double time would have the variable section. But given the fact that he had asked just straight up, will I have it? And they came back with this sort of convoluted answer. It was still very confusing. It's like, well, yeah, but am I an exception? Do Is, is this when you say all, does that mean me as well? Because in the past, that has not included me. So, it, you know, it was well, very confusing. They write like lawyers in the worst sense of that <laughs> description, right? They they write yeah. as if they're just trying to protect themselves from lawsuits, which maybe they are because they probably do get sued a lot. So I guess that's that. Maybe we should move on. Yeah. Okay, here's the next letter. Hi, Nathan. I'm really enjoying your and Ben's podcast while on my way to work. I'm an older student, age 40 with a lot of business and community experience. I've been an entrepreneur and have held various senior marketing and communications positions in corporations. And I'm also an active member on the board of directors of a prominent nonprofit. Also, I have a family, a husband and three kids. There are only two law schools in my state, one of which is in my city. I'd be thrilled to attend there. My question is this, 
Will law schools view me as someone who doesn't have a lot of choice in where she'll go, given that my career and community connections are all established in my city and that I have a family? All of this will be apparent from my resume, as a lot of my volunteer experience is with my kids' schools. If that's the case, will schools be less likely to offer me a generous scholarship? I, I mean, my, my initial reaction to this is, yeah, I think that they might see this applicant who she said she wants to be called Rebecca. They might see Rebecca as someone who is tied to the community, and therefore they might have more leverage over her application in the sense that they know she's unlikely to go to other places. But I think that the benefits of having this experience of being someone who is connected in the community and the school is very much a part of that community far outweigh the negatives. And so if I were an admissions officer at her this school in her city, I would look at her application as someone who's very likely to get a job after she's done with school, very likely to stay connected with the school, probably donate money to the school because she's so invested in this community. She's not going to leave and go somewhere else and never have any other connection with the school. So I think the benefits far outweigh the, 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 the potential con here and therefore I would be wanting to give her a scholarship. Come to this city, Come stay here, come to this school, and continue to build on what you've already Yeah, built. I mean, they're going to want to give her a scholarship, again, if her LSAT and GPA are the kind of numbers that a scholarship would, you know, uh, be sensible for. I mean, all, all of these yeah. factors are definitely going to help her admissions case, sure, and also her scholarship case. I mean, she just, all this stuff makes her look like a great candidate. So I think you're right. Yeah. It, it cuts both ways, but I think it cuts more in her favor than it does the other way. Um, email yeah. goes on and says, I've learned from your podcast about the wisdom of applying to schools where I don't necessarily envision going just to gauge my market value and give me some leverage. I intend to apply to my undergrad alma mater, which is in another state where I grew up, as well as a few other schools in that state. But I will probably also apply to other schools where I have no connection whatsoever, but where my scores are in line with their admissions profile. Perhaps it's my anxiety speaking. Will those schools, quote, see through this attempt, figuring me to not be seriously willing to relocate, though I would in many instances, and be stingy with their offers as a result? Should I address this in my personal statement or addendum in some way? Yeah, I, I say no to all that. Yeah. I would just apply, I mean, and do exactly what you're doing, see if there's some interest and maybe use it as leverage. And if they, quote, see through that and decide not to offer you a scholarship, well, then that's a lost opportunity. But I don't think that's necessarily going to be true for every school. That's part of it is just seeing what yeah, they'll do. I mean, I think you're overthinking it here uh, for sure. Um, you know, nobody cares about your application more than you do. Nobody thinks about your application more than you do. So I think the schools are just, you know, they're going to see your LSAT and your GPA and your work experience or whatever. And they're going to be like, oh, this is a really good candidate. Let's offer her a scholarship and see if she'll come here. Right. Like, why would they not mm -hmm. offer money if they don't think you're going to take it? That's just silly. That There's no reason for them. <laughs> the money, the offer only matters if you take it. So why would they not offer you money? Yeah, I think they'll, they would be concerned about their yield, right? So, But that's the thing is you're just applying to several, several of these schools and some of them may say no, 
but some of them may say yes, and then you have that yeah. in your back pocket. And I would apply to schools that you could remotely see yourself attending. I don't know that I'd waste my time and money on schools yeah, that there's no way in exactly. hell that I'd go to. So I, I might have said in the past, you know, just sort of being extreme, I might have said like, hey, you know, I might apply to a school that I had no intention of going to. But I don't think I really mean that. I think because that's the other piece of advice that I would give her is to say, hey, why, why, why wouldn't you consider, why wouldn't you at least entertain an offer? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I understand you have a family and whatever, but I mean, if the, if a school is going to give you a full ride plus a stipend plus books plus, you know, whatever, which they sometimes do for really good candidates, it, that whole package might be worth 200 grand. I mean, maybe it is worth moving for 200 grand. I don't know. Yeah. Shake things up. Change the the family dynamic. I mean, it's not everyone's situation is different, but sometimes people do right, that on purpose. Right. It could be good for the kids, right? you know? <laughs> like the kids might be socially better off for the rest of their lives if they have to change schools when they're young so that they just get used to it, so that they get used to the fact that sometimes mm-hmm. they have to go make an entirely new set of friends. I mean, I don't know. I never did that. I yeah. stayed at my same school for like my entire life and then I ended up having like social anxiety problems for the rest of my life. So I would just at least think about, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You know, oh, they don't admit you. So, yeah. or they do admit you and make you this crazy offer that makes you start to actually have to think about moving. I mean, that's a good problem yeah. to have. Okay. Email goes on. My follow on question is this. The school in my city that I'm hoping to attend is well within my reach score wise and is a highly regarded school in my region. My first LSAT score, which is June 2016, was at their 75th percentile, and my undergraduate GPA is slightly above their 75th. Are those ranges typically indicative of a scholarship offer? Yes. Yes. It's a necessary condition for me, she says. I'm retaking in December so that I can apply to my undergrad alma mater and have more options. Given all this, should I apply to the local law school now and then alert them to the new score when it comes out in January, or should I just wait to apply until then? I've heard mixed opinions on timing of applications. Appreciate your insight. Thank you, Rebecca. Hmm. I would say apply now to the local school because she has the score, the scores that would get her, that would likely get her a scholarship. And I think that scholarship now is going to depend a little bit more on the time, like applying early when the money is available. Yeah, I agree. And if they make her an offer that is not, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Get the ball rolling now. I mean, they're already going to maybe offer you a full ride just based on the fact that you're 75th and 75th percentile. And even if they don't, like you said, I think, or I think what you were going to say is then when the score comes out, if it's higher, then it's like, well, they had, they would definitely would have accepted her. So now the, her application is going to be active and then they might yeah, reevaluate. And she could even like when they give her an offer, if, the, if they give her an offer that she doesn't like, she could always say, Hey, oh, uh, you know, it's just I'm, I, I want to let you guys know that I am retaking the LSAT on December third because I'm pretty sure I can score higher, and um, the reason why I'm doing that is that a scholarship is an absolute necessity for me, and I'm just not going to law school without mm-hmm. a better scholarship offer. And um, you yeah. know, the, <laughs> especially if you if that's true, if that's if that's really the actual story, 
um, that's a very powerful yeah. negotiating stance to take. Mm -hmm. Even more powerful when the score comes back and it is actually higher. But uh, yeah, I yeah. think go ahead and apply now and and just because uh, because you've already got a great score on record, right? It's already a really competitive score. So go ahead and apply now. And then um, if you need to tell them about that later score, you can. Yeah. I guess that's that. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for writing in. Cool. Where'd this question come from? On the blog? Yeah, this is on our blog. So uh, thinking LSAT.com, uh, someone posted this question. It says, hey, dudes, do you have any thoughts on if it's a good idea to write about a specific area of law that you intend to work in within your personal statement or stay more broad? Thanks. So my reaction to this is that it's not an either or situation that you either write about a specific area of law that you intend to work with, work in or quote, stay more broad. Like I don't, first of all, I don't think that she should be writing about a specific area of law. I mean, I guess it depends on what she means about what she's going to say about that. If, if she has a lot of experience in it and she knows that, that, he or he or she wants to go into that area of law, then maybe it would make sense to talk about it. But um, I guess I'm just worried about someone writing about that area of law as if they they know that much about it because most people don't know. And even if they do, that's not the point yeah. of the personal statement. Well, I mean, it can be if you have actual work experience in that area, maybe. Right. Like if you've worked in a specific mm -hmm. field of law in some firm for three years, um, like I um, have this buddy, he's a former student of mine who's in law school now, and he had like a 10 or 15 year career negotiating um, like workers comp claims before applying to yeah. law school. And in that case, it makes all the sense mm -hmm. in the world. I mean, he knew exactly what he was going to do when he got out of law school and, yeah. and just very credibly could talk about, Hey, I've been already negotiating. Like, <laughs> I know these lawyers, I know the judges, I know exactly what this field of law is. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm here is because I need, you know, a JD blah, blah, blah. So I can actually whatever. And it, in that case, it just mm -hmm. is makes perfect sense. But yeah. I read a lot of very naive sounding personal statements where it's like just you know people talking about how they want to go into immigration law because they care about the plight of immigrants and it's like mm, i know that's yeah. a, it's a sad story and i believe you i believe that that's why you're here the problem is that you know there's so many people who are deluded into thinking that they're actually going to have a career working in immigration law and mm -hmm. or even know what it's like right like having a, a an emotional connection with a problem and then planning to work as an attorney with that problem may be two totally different yeah they met realities. one attorney who uh, worked you, for their family you know and they they met that attorney one time for 30 minutes and now like that's their you know, that this is my motivation for going to law school. I don't know. It's just lame. It's so easy for anyone to say that for one thing. Mm -hmm. 
So if you have a lot of experience in this particular area of law and you know what's going on and this is definitely what you want to do when you graduate, then it does make sense. But even if you have some experience, uh, especially if you have no experience in a particular area of law, then you probably shouldn't write on how you plan to do that because I think most, most law schools expect students to come in and actually experiment with a lot of different types of classes and topics and figure out what they will ultimately do and not necessarily know from the beginning. It's almost like you're saying a little naive to pretend to know uh, what's going on unless you have yeah, that that's, experience. Those ones are very annoying, I feel like. The ones that just are kind of pretentious, like are acting like they know exactly what's mm-hmm. up when they it, when it, it's pretty obvious that they don't because they they don't have any work experience in a law firm. So just be, mm-hmm. be really careful to, you know, you don't want to be telling them what law school is like, you know, or don't, you don't want to be telling them what everything you're going to get out of law school because you don't, you don't really know. And you, and yeah, you, you definitely don't really know what type of legal practice you're going to be in. It's something like 50% of all the people who go to law school never practice law to begin with. And then of Mm -hmm. the people who do practice law, like almost everyone ends up changing their field when they go to law school. There are, there are just hundreds of fields of law that you don't even know exist until you start law school. (laughs) Right. Or even if you did, you would have no idea what it means. Like intellectual yeah. property, for example, is not, there is almost not really even a field called intellectual property. That's like 10 different things. <laughs> and, and, and no one knows what it means. I mean, you, in the very, very broad abstract, you have some idea what it means, but you don't know what the practice of IP law looks like unless mm-hmm. you've worked in an IP firm for three years and then maybe you do. But, it's, you know, just, yeah, I would just say very much be careful. What should, um, yeah. We're going to call, we need to kind of says, oh, too much pressure to come up with an awesome pseudonym. I'll leave that up to you guys. Surprise me. Um, I was going to go with like Spicoli or like Bill and Ted. Uh, Spicoli? From Fast Times at Ridgemont High, dude. He's like the stoner, uh, the stoner cool. dude, Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, or... Or Bill and Ted from I Bill and Ted's Excellent I have adventure. to check that out. Yeah, you got that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, I'm not I'm not totally sealed <laughs> off in the world yet. So what should Spicoli write about then, if not um, some specific area of law? Yeah, that. I mean, that's a tough question. I, it's, I think one thing that you're trying to tell someone something about yourself that hopefully reveals a level of maturity and usually and a commitment to learning or whatever and hopefully you do that by telling a a story or two that reveals it doesn't have to be a story, but it, it often, I think, is, and it can be an effective way of conveying these things without saying them, uh, that r- reveals uh, how you are mature, how you recognize that the world is not as simple as we often think it is when we're growing up. I was just reading a personal statement the other day about someone who talked about how uh, growing up he had come to view uh, the 
authority such as uh, police officers and the legal system in general, prosecutors, so on, as sort of negative as as people who are enforcing enforcing things that shouldn't be enforced and basically repressing people. And as he was saying this in his personal statement and talking about experiences that had kind of reinforced this view, I was starting to get nervous that it was just going to end and be like, (laughs) and not just to the police, but the whole, you know, system, the the legal system in general. And, but at the end, uh, he pivoted and talked about his recent work experience in a an agency uh, in on, in the federal government that deals with uh, legal and law enforcement and stuff like that, and how much good this the people or this agency was doing, and the people that he worked with, and their motivations and their desire to solve very serious problems, and that that had changed his perspective not to the point where he now thinks everything is great but he had a much more realistic and nuanced view of the whole legal system that it's got its problems that there are people who abuse power in the system but there are also a lot of people in the system who are really trying to help those who are repressed and so it's this you know dual edged sword and that sort of pivot in the personal statement just made it so much better something that was actually very valuable like oh wow someone who's going to read this is going to come away recognizing you as someone who is thoughtful reflective and understanding of the world in a much more nuanced not simplistic way just make sure to telegraph that that pivot is coming you know pretty high in the in the piece yeah i i actually wondered about that yeah, it, that might be valuable. I also thought there might be some value in just how it, it did change. Like it made it more of an impact. You're like, oh, this person really does get it, you know, uh, because you were anticipating them not to. I mean, you, I guess you run the risk of someone sort of abandoning the statement before it's done. But it wasn't very long. Yeah, so. I would. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do it, right? There's, there's a lot of ways you could yeah. sort of put just a little hint. That, that you used to feel a little this hint. way, yeah. you know, and you can describe for sure. Yeah. You can describe how you used to feel, but you want to make it so that it, you know, it, it used to feel that way. And, uh, then, <laughs> cause otherwise, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, just, you don't want people to, they, you know, you got to remember that they might be reading this statement in like two minutes and, and there, mm-hmm. there is no mm-hmm. guarantee that they're going to really sit there and read every single word. So I'm sure most of them do. Mm-hmm. I, I've known some very thoughtful admissions people who I, you know, really believed they were sitting there actually really pouring over every page of an applicant of an application. But I think in some cases there's going to be some people doing some skimming <laughs> and you want to make sure you don't look like you're going to be a problem. Yeah. yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I generally tell people to have a beer or two and write a really shitty first draft of a personal statement and the, at least, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the way I do all my writing. Um, so, you know, just to like get it out there, right. Cause it's important that you just get the words out on the page and for sure questions. Like if I was going to give somebody a writing prompt, there are two questions that I try to get them to answer. And one is why you, and the other is why law school. So why you, 
is, you know, what is it about you, your personality, your background? Why should they pick you over everyone else? And then why law school mm-hmm. is sort of like, why are you choosing law school over everything else you could choose? You know, you've made the case that you're such a great mm-hmm. candidate. Well, then why why are you coming here instead of doing something else? So I think if you just do some free writing, maybe on those two topics, you know, write a bunch of bullets and then flesh them out a little bit and just get a big shitty first draft out there. And then you'll find something. There's a lot of ways you can tell that story. I mean, why for, as far as the like why you part that that's what so many people are missing. They love writing mm-hmm. about like, oh, I'm going to be this kind of lawyer or, oh, this other person that I yeah. interacted with in my life has such a sad story. And it's like, OK, great. But mm-hmm. why, why you? Who are you? You know, or they'll like um, yeah. they'll rehash their entire resume. Which is like they already have your resume. You don't need to just go through a chronological yeah. history of your life. They're, they're reading this because they want yeah. to learn who you are as a person. It's supposed to be a personal statement, right? A statement mm-hmm. about you, a per something personal about you that shows some aspect of your personality, some aspect of, you know, it could be an anecdote of something. I mean, I think it should have like factual anecdotes in there. It should have like a story and it should be something that they mm-hmm. can't just immediately see by looking at your resume. Yeah. But beyond that, man, there's a million different. I, I would say, don't you think, Ben, that like for really for any person, they should be able to write 10 different personal statements? Yeah. And as we were talking, actually, uh, I started thinking about this whole process when you said you, know, you suggest that people take two drinks and then just start writing. I think that is like there's something about not writing something that's perfect that I think prevents a lot of people from writing. Like, unless it's perfect, they feel very hesitant about putting I, it on I do. paper. I mean, it's part right? of the reason why I'm like an alcoholic, dude. I, I've i written six books and I pretty much go to a bar. I mean, that's like how I get it out there. Now, I don't edit that way, <laughs> you know, and good writing comes yeah. from, from good, ruthless, repeated editing. But if I just sit there yeah. dead sober staring at the blank page, it can be tough to get words out there. And um, so, you know, it's a crutch yeah. and I probably shouldn't do it. I'm not really advising everybody to develop an alcohol problem. But, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a glass of wine and just get get it out there on the page or whatever you have to do to get it out there on the page. Yeah, so this is what I was thinking. Uh, it, there's value in just getting something down so that you can then mess with that or or use that as a springboard for other ideas, right? There's it, If you can just get some stuff on the paper, then you can work with that. And I was thinking that, I haven't ever tried this before, this is just a thought I was ha- had as, as you were talking, but imagine uh, yourself going to an informal interview with a admissions officer and you sit down and they say, hey, tell me about yourself. I think there could be value in just taking out your phone and using the recording feature and just record, just 
record and start talking because you'd have to start talking in that situation. You couldn't sit there and say, oh, well, uh, let me get back to you. I, I'll, I'll talk to you later once I've thought of something nice. You just have to start talking and you might not like what you record, but it's going to force you to start you know, spewing out ideas and things to say. And you might do that every morning for a few days. And then one of those days you're going to hit on something that you do really want to talk about. And then you could start writing about that or even take some of your, you know, your audio transcripts and start putting that down on paper. That's a great tip because it might actually get people to write a little bit more the way they speak, which is just, it's, I don't know why people people are such shitty writers because they just go into this stuffy formal like oh i am writing sentences now and it's like dude no one taught you don't talk like that so don't write like that go ahead and just write in a conversational Mm -hmm. tone first person conversational kind of a tone and yeah tell me a story you know hey tell me something what was your favorite class you took in college tell me something scary that happened to Mm -hmm. you at some point in your life Tell me something funny that happened at your first job. Um, you know, like any of those kinds of prompts could turn into what's your nickname? Why do they call you that? You know, who's your favorite mm-hmm. family member and why? Uh, I don't know. Who's your best friend? Tell me why. What is it about them? And just like get just start. Mm-hmm. Just get some shit out there. But yeah, for your two page yeah. personal statement, I mean, the easiest way to write a two page personal statement is to write six pages worth of bullshit and then just narrow it down to the two pages of gold that's there. Mm-hmm. And it's not that yeah. hard. It's also, it's just, it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I would think that in a couple of weeks you ought to be able to go from zero to basically perfect personal statement. I mean, you're going to have to write a bunch of bullshit. You're going to have to edit it down, put it away for a little way, a while, come back to it, edit it some more, edit it some more, maybe start over a time or two. Then it just needs to be perfectly copy edited. And for that, I mean, I would Mm -hmm. recommend really paying someone for the copy editing or just give it to five different friends. And and, but, you know, like somebody in the end has to have the ability to perfectly copy edit it. And it might not be you. I mean, in fact, Mm -hmm. most applicants that I see, it's probably not them. Here's one piece of advice I'd give to everyone, and I give to everyone who asked me for uh, tips on their personal statement. Read your once you've settled on a personal statement, and you like the story, and this is what you're gonna say. Read it at least three times out loud, and as you read it, you're gonna cut phrases down to either nothing or one word. So, for example, someone might write. You know, there was a lot of chaos. Well, you could replace a lot of with much, but you don't realize that when you're just writing. But that's what happens is sometimes you cut them down uh, the first run through and then you read it again and you're like, ah, I actually don't even need that. Yeah. So you just cut it out entirely. And this is how you can get a statement down to a page and a half and still have a ton of meaning because you've just gotten rid of all the fluff that you have yeah. when you're just talking. But I, I agree 100%. You should start from the way you talk and just like clean it up as opposed to sounding all stuffy. And the other thought I had was that this is kind of like taking the LSAT several times. If you could take the LSAT 10 times and then choose the score that 
was your best score that everyone would do that right like you said you should probably write five or six different personal statements and then just choose the one that's the best rather than trying to create the best one yeah or outline from five or six of them you know just some bullet points you could do bullet points. I, I think there's value in just kind of just starting to write, you know, or just starting to talk and just spew, you know, just don't stop. Don't make it great. Just write it. And then once you're done, say, oh, yeah, this one sounds good. Or even send it to a couple of people and say, hey, of these two, which one do you think is more interesting or compelling? Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Last uh, email, and then we'll jump into some logical reasoning questions. Jimbo says, howdy. I recently learned about your podcast, and I enjoy listening to it. I'm currently a senior in high school applying for colleges. A lot of the colleges that I'm applying to offer accelerated 3-3 law programs, where I would have an accelerated undergraduate degree with fewer electives and then start law school for my fourth year at college. I would receive a bachelor's degree and a JD in six years rather than seven. I'm very interested in these programs. What would you say are the pros and cons of doing a 3-3 program compared to the traditional 4-3? I'm a good student with a solid GPA, cumulative 4.0 weighted, whatever that means in high school. I mean, some kids have 6.0 or 5.0s in high school, so I don't really know what that is going to mean for these programs. And test scores, 1,400 on the new SAT. I think that's pretty good, right? Is it out of 1,600 now, the SAT? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And I'm very confident that I'll be able to get into the programs. It's just a matter of if I decide it's a good idea or not. Thanks a lot, Jimbo. What do you think? Well, I wonder what the level of commitment is here. If if by applying to these programs, he's essentially committing to six years, I would say don't do it. Do the four three and go figure out what you want to do with your life in your four years of college. I would take a diverse set of classes and decide that you really do want to do law school and then go to three years of law school rather than committing to six years now, having not taken a bunch of classes that Jimbo will eventually take and learn new interests and skills and maybe decide to do something totally different. So you're saying that if it's like you have, if once you start, you're like committed to the full six years. Yeah, I would agree because I mean, what, he's got to be maybe 18 now. And so he's committing to Mm -hmm. something like he's committing to one quarter, uh, one third of his life so far is what he's making this commitment to. Right. It's, and I mean, like you Mm -hmm. change so much in the ages 18 through 24, or at least hopefully you do. (laughs) So yeah, that does sound like a, just an awful, huge, that's a nasty commitment for a kid to be making. Well, at the very least, you know, maybe he goes to school and he's doing four years of school and he takes a bunch of different classes. He majors in something totally different from law, like chemistry or whatever. And then he's like, yes, this confirms that I want to become a lawyer, maybe an IP lawyer or whatever. But great. Then he goes into the program knowing this is exactly what he wants to do with his life. But I just feel like there is so many other opportunities out there that are so much more interesting than law. And law can be super interesting for people, but I would want to go to school and experience yeah i guess that's what we would have to know from him is just how and how certain are you that law school is really the thing for you and why you know how do you know that if he's got 
nothing but lawyers in his family. And if they have great careers and if he, he's been to work with them every day for the, his entire life and he knows exactly what he's getting himself into, then, okay, you know, I could see how, well, this is your inevitable path. Why not get on that path and just make it the shortest route you can possibly take, right? I mean, some 18-year-olds are way more uh, mature than I was when I was 18. But yeah, I would yeah. still be really hesitant, well, even if that was yeah. his family's like maybe even more so. Yeah. Like he's been brainwashed into thinking this is like the end all be all. No he's offense got to a your family. But... SAT too, which means that like I don't think you can make that score if you're not good at math. And so he's actually like good yeah. at math, which means he might be able to do something sciencey. If and I don't know if I had it to do mm-hmm. over again, I would absolutely take as much science stuff as i possibly could you know like math and science and engineering and just like i would be working on the space shuttle or something i would not (laughs) if if you have i say this to my kids all the time you know if you have any kind of a science and math brain you should strongly consider using that science math brain be a doctor cure cancer do something do Mm -hmm. something good for the world Yes, yeah. I know lawyers do sometimes do a lot of good for the world. The lawyers also are a huge pain in the ass for the world in a million different ways. And lawyers are not curing cancer. So, yeah, Jimbo, if, if there's a chance that you can cure cancer, I would say absolutely check that out before. Law school will always be there. You can always just decide to do it later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you save a year. I don't think that's, I really don't think that's significant. Yeah. (laughs) It's hilarious because ultimately my advice is probably like, dude, don't even go to, what are you doing going to college? You should be going good in an apprenticeship (laughs) to work in a metal shop somewhere and work with your hands, go to Alaska and do, you know, do something more interesting for, with your with your late teens and early twenties, come back to school. Once you've realized what it is that you actually want to do with your life. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you don't, you don't really disagree with that. Do you? No, I would say, um, I mean, even just thinking about myself and my own experience with undergrad, I would, I would enjoy it a lot more now. And I'd take classes that I was really interested in and just see it as an opportunity to learn. And, and so I think it's kind of hard to do that in retrospect, but if someone say graduated from high school and then just went to another country for a year and taught English or something, just got out there, saw a lot of different perspectives and then came back and went to school, they might be even more invested in it than if they just kind of followed the, the treadmill you know, and like next, 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 go school, school. It just seems like, I don't know. Yeah, totally. I, you know, then again, there are students who get great grades all through high school and really like it and are doing well. And then they're going to go to college and also do really well. So it's hard for me not to be colored by my own, you know, just I've always been a shitty student. I was a shitty student. I, you know, I, I got kind of mediocre grades in high school and then I got shitty, shitty grades in college because I just wasn't engaged in it. You know, I just cruised through, graduated mm-hmm. in four years, 
but got very little out of it because I wasn't putting anything into it. And if that's what you're going to do, then I would absolutely say, you know, go do anything else. I should have like enlisted in the national guard or something. Like I should have been like, just get some discipline or work on a, you know, seriously, like go work in a lumber yard or something <laughs> like make myself, I don't know, <laughs> make myself like do some, do something for, for, for a while before then going back. Mm-hmm. And, and then maybe I would have gotten more out of my bachelor's degree, but it could be that Jimbo is one of those kids that's going to actually go and excel. So I don't know. Well, I don't think he's not going to excel. I think it's just having yeah, different experiences can make that more valuable, you know, and more more effective use of your time. I think part of Jimbo and a lot of people are in the situation where like they know they're like they I should say think they know where they want to go and so this is the fastest way to get there and yeah, it is, but there's also value in slowing down and saying, okay, let me go get some experience in some some other totally different thing, shake things up, then come back and be like, yes, this is exactly what I want to continue doing. Or, you know, maybe I want to actually kind of pursue a different path and I'm still going to go to school. I'm still going to do really well, but I'm going to study, you know. Yeah, the school is just what. always going to be there. I mean, you know, I guess parents have a way of pushing people into it because they want to see their kid you know well i have to make sure that jimbo turns out to be a college graduate so we're going to like encourage him to go straight to college and and all that but if you can talk your parents into the idea that hey you know i'm a good student and i'm going to be a good student and i'm going to kick ass in school but i need to be a server for a year and i need to travel you know, go to Europe and mm-hmm. live on my own for a while and just do something for a while just to get mm-hmm. some sort of life under my belt before I start spending all this money and time in um, these certifications. Because that's really what they are, right? These degrees are just, you're paying someone to stamp your resume, essentially. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, you could get a lot more out of it with a little bit more perspective. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jimbo, for writing in. That's it for the emails. Everybody, remember, you can always uh, get in touch with us, help at thinkinglsat.com. And I guess it's time to do some uh, questions from the June 2007 exam. Yeah. So for anybody who's new, we've been working our way slowly through the June 2007 LSAT. If you just Google June 2007 LSAT, Uh, The test will pop right up. It is free. And we are in section three, which is logical reasoning. And we left off last time in episode 71. We did question number five. So today we're going to do question number six and possibly seven. We'll see how much time we have. Cool. So section three of the June 2007 test, uh, logical reasoning, question number six. You want to read it, Ben? Yeah. So this says uh, Jablonski. Yeah. Is that how you'd say that? Jablonski, who owns a car dealership, has donated cars to driver education programs at area schools for over five years. Okay. Nice person. 
Maybe she's doing it for promotion yeah. to get her name out there. Who knows? She found the statistics on car accidents to be disturbing. And she wanted to do something to encourage better driving in young drivers. Some members of the community have shown their support for this action by purchasing cars from Jablonski's dealership. Okay, so I don't see any argument here. I just see someone doing something and she seems to be motivated for a good reason and it seems to have this uh, side yeah, benefit which, for her. Um, you know, we don't know that she didn't think that might have happened. But I think we have yeah. to accept it as a premise that she does find the statistics on car accidents to be disturbing. And it's another premise that she mm-hmm. wanted to do something to encourage better driving in young drivers. And she has donated cars for over five years to these driver education programs at area schools. So she, I think we have to accept it as fact that she's at least... Um, partially motivated here by altruism. Yeah, I agree. That's not to say that she's not also motivated by money. No, yeah, she right. can be motivated by both. We just and it's like yeah, a win win. We just don't know. We assume she likes money. We assume she likes she likes business at her dealership. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So, since there's no argument, it's really not surprising to see what this question is, which is, which one of the following propositions is best illustrated by the passage? Uh, I would call this an inference question. I think you would call this a must-be-true question. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so, I would say this is of the most supported variety, but in any case, the point is, is that we're looking for an answer that is supported by the passage better than the other four answers and almost certainly going to be something that must be true or really close to it. Now, answer choice A says the only way to reduce traffic accidents is through driver education programs. (laughs) This is definitely wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't have to be true at all based on the facts we were given. I mean, I think we know that I think I think one way to reduce traffic accidents is probably through driver education programs based on the given facts, but not the only way yep. because what if we made driving completely illegal? Yep. Totally. So this is one thing about these answers is that uh, they will probably either introduce the wrong answers will either introduce new ideas that weren't addressed or they'll go too far or do both. And this one definitely goes too far by saying the only way. Very strong language. Doesn't have to be true. Yeah. I like to, um, one thing I like to do on the must be true questions is I like to, to try to tell little stories on the wrong answers. Like if I can tell a story that would make A false without making the given facts false, then A is not the answer for a must be true question. So, you know, a, a, a story like, well, what if we made all driving just 100% illegal? Or what if we mandated auto drive mm-hmm. cars? Or what mm-hmm. if we made the speed limit two miles an hour everywhere? Wouldn't all those things reduce mm-hmm. traffic accidents potentially? What if we put cops on every single street corner? And so any yeah. one of those stories makes A false, then A just does not have to be true based on the given facts. Yep. 
B. Altruistic actions sometimes have positive consequences for those who perform them. This <laughs> this is almost certainly correct. I uh, haven't read the rest, but she did an altruistic thing. It sometimes, which just means at least once, had a positive consequence for Jablonski, the dealership owner. But this Ben, like the you don't answer. know that it was a positive consequence for her? <laughs> well, I am making that assumption it that by say it in the facts that it was they a have positive shown their support. Yeah, I, I would. I'm making an assumption here that by supporting this action and purchasing cars from her dealership, that's a positive consequence for her. And I don't think it's an right. unreasonable you're, you're assumption. You're allowed to use your brain. I mean, people get so caught up, like they get so well. It doesn't. There's no premise there that says that if someone purchases a car from her dealership, that that's a positive consequence. It's like that is just that is such a short leap. We're allowed to make those short leaps like that. That's that's just a no brainer. It's yeah. just obvious. Yeah. Imagine what a judge would say yep. if you were like, "Well, that doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to necessarily help her when someone purchases a car from her dealership, Your Honor." And the judge is like, "Shut <laughs> the fuck." <up>. You, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So B, we're liking B a lot. We're liking B a lot. So A is crossed out. B is open. C. Young drivers are the group most likely to benefit from driver education programs. Again, I'm going to focus in on the strong language here. We did briefly talk about young people, didn't we? I feel like she said, yes, she wanted to do something to encourage better driving in young drivers. So she did talk about young drivers, but when it says they are the group, quote, most likely to benefit from driver education programs, I'm thinking, I have no idea about other groups. So yeah, and to make that I false, um, well, no, maybe actually... Young people think they're bulletproof and don't pay attention to teachers. They're tired and bored from school all day. So they actually don't benefit that much from driver education programs. Um, in fact, if you give a driver education program to a 40-year-old, maybe they would be the ones who are, you know, now they have like families and kids and jobs and responsibilities and they've started to realize that they're not going to live forever. And then maybe those are the ones that go, oh, I should follow farther behind when it's raining. I see. Like, you know, that might, that could be true without all of these facts being false. So because C can be false, then it's not, it's just not, it doesn't have, it's not a must be true. Yeah. Yeah. D, it is usually in one's best interest to perform actions that benefit others. Okay. Again, I'm going to focus in on the logical terms that are strong, which would be usually and best, but just starting with usually, we know that it's in her, not necessarily her best interest, but in her interest to perform these actions in this particular case. Do we know that's usually the case? In other words, most of the time? Yeah, in, in all situations that don't even have anything to do with donating cars to driver education programs at area schools when you own a car dealership. I mean, I think it's hard to argue with D in real life. You end up looking like a dick if you argue with D in real life. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, something like, um, is it really in your best interest to give your car keys to some guy on the street who wants a car? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> maybe, but that doesn't have to be true. So I don't think we can pick yeah. D. 
overbroad, especially the word usually. Yeah. Yep. E, an action must have broad community support if it is to be successful. (laughs) Uh, You can't do anything out there. Uh, If you want something to be successful, you better have broad community support. That one, that's maybe the worst answer. You know, if I, if I decide that I want to have a piece of pizza, I don't don't need any broad community support in order to be successful in that action. It's not that hard to go (laughs) get myself some pizza. So, um, no, I don't, I don't see how E is justified by these facts. B, look back at B. Does it not seem boring and obvious? And, and weak and thus good. Weak and boring and obvious and exactly what the passage said. Um, so that's going to be the answer. Um, sadly, some people aren't going to miss it because they don't know what altruistic means. Uh, how frequently do you run into Pretty that problem? I run into the problem of people having poor vocabularies. And it's, yeah. um, it's a shame. I mean, I, I would say that's a... That's a sign that you you potentially might be barking up the wrong tree. You know, if you if you find on the LSAT that there are a lot of words you don't understand, I mean, there's I'm gonna find words, right? You you probably find words, Ben. Once or one one here and there, you find a word that you're like, hmm, not quite sure what that is, but I can probably get it from context. Um, in this yeah. case, uh, if if you had no clue what altruism is. You can't really get that mm-hmm. from context here. Not from reading just yeah. answer choice B. And so then you might be in trouble. But if you missed this one for that reason, I mean, that's a that's a, a bit of a red flag. That's because that's that's kind of scary. Yeah. Altruism, by the way, if it is a word that you don't know, you must know it because it will come up time and time again on the LSAT. Yeah. They love it. Yep. OK, cool. Should we do Antonio, the next one? I think we should. Okay. Antonio, one can live a life of moderation by never deviating from the middle course. Uh, Okay, I don't know what the middle course is, but I could kind of imagine that. Not having extremes. You know, just sort of like what I would expect a common sense understanding of a life of moderation to be. Right. A life of, I mean, what is moderation? Moderation is not drinking too much, not eating too much, not doing anything too much. And so never deviating from the middle course, that would be like, you know, we all have friends that are like that. Uh, Ben, you're probably more like that than I'm like that. Um, Just sort of, you know, steady. Uh, Don't really overdo it. Just kind of stay on the middle path. Be, Be sensible, be healthy. Yeah, no, uh, that makes sense. I It's not so much that I might guess what the middle course is. I also just think it's kind of a weird phrase, you know, like the middle course. Like that could be who knows. But anyways, it doesn't yeah. matter. So this is what Antonio okay. is saying. But then one loses the joy of spontaneity and misses the opportunities that come to those who are occasionally willing to take great chances or to go too far. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so it sounds like Antonio would prefer people to not 
live uh, a life of moderation. Yeah, or he, yeah, I agree. He seems to be kind of shitting on this life of moderation, at least the way he's defined it. He's like, well, yeah, of course yeah. you could, you know, only ever have a maximum of one drink with dinner. Mm-hmm. And you would be living a life of moderation by never deviating from that course. But yeah. then you would, of course, lose the joy of spontaneity and miss the opportunities that come from those who are willing to have nine beers with dinner. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Marla says, but one who, in the interest of moderation, never risks going too far, is actually failing to live a life of moderation. One must be moderate even in one's moderation. I like that. Okay. Uh, That's a famous quote about temperance. Temperance in moderation. There's a famous quote? No. Enlighten me. Uh, boy, I would have to Google it. It's exactly like, like that, that, that you should be, you should be, yeah, temperance, which is moderation, right? But it's, the, the, the phrase is like temperance in moderation. That's basically the punchline that it's like, yeah, yeah, you should do this, but you should, you should also be moderate in the way you're being moderate, which is what Marla is Yeah. Okay, cool. So then it says, Antonio and Marla disagree over. So do you have any prediction as to what they disagree about? I do. Because okay. I'm, I could imagine Antonio listening to Marla. And I think I caught it like halfway through Marla's statement. Okay. I could imagine, I was imagining Antonio raising his eyebrow. Mm-hmm. I was I was actually picturing Antonio Banderas raising his eyebrow. Mm, yeah, I think it is Banderas. I think it is Antonio mm-hmm. Banderas. Yeah, he was um, because when she said she because she seems like she, yeah she's right off the bat she's disagreeing with him right she mm-hmm. says but one who in the interest of moderation never risks going too far is actually failing to live a life of moderation. Mm-hmm. But Antonio's first sentence was one can live a life of moderation by never deviating from the middle course. Yep. So Antonio is like, Hey, here's what moderation means. It means never deviating. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but that's a bad idea. Yep. Marla says, actually, that's not even a life of moderation when you do that mm-hmm. because you're being immoderate in the way you're yep. being moderate. You can be so moderate that you're being extreme about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you're hinting at here is that there's kind of a clue in the fact that they both talk about this phrase, a life of moderation. So to disagree about something, they both have to talk about it. Right. And it seems to me that Antonio has defined a life of moderation, or at least one way of living a life of moderation, is mm-hmm. to be moderate the entire all the time. 24-7, yep. right? Yeah. And Marla disagrees with that. Marla actually says, nope, if you do that, you're not actually living a life of moderation. Yeah. So they, it seems like they have disagreed on one definition of a life of moderation. Yeah. So then let's see what we find. Okay. Answer choice A, whether it is desirable for people occasionally to take great chances in life. Uh, I think they 
that's not what you predicted. And I think that's what I think they both agree with that. Yeah, Antonio says yes to that pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. And then Marla is all about, hey, yeah, you you've got to be moderate even in in your moderation. So maybe Marla didn't specifically take a position on, you know, taking great mm-hmm. chances. Mm-hmm. But if anything, it almost seems like she would agree with a. Yeah. And, yeah. And we need one speaker to clearly say yes and the other speaker to clearly say no. So if they're going to agree, that's not the answer. Or if one of them's not going to take a position, then that's also not the answer. Yeah. So I don't think it can be A. All right. B says, what a life of moderation requires of a person. This is what you predicted. So I would keep it open. Yeah. Um, I could push back on it, but. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like it. I think it's the answer because I think they're arguing about the definition of a life of moderation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The word requires makes me skeptical because it seems to me that Antonio said that it would be sufficient to never deviate from the middle course. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Antonio says it's necessary that you never mm-hmm. deviate from the middle course. Yeah. And if they're going to yeah. get all, you know, stick up their ass all the time about the difference between sufficient and necessary, <laughs> then mm-hmm. that seems a little bit like a misstatement. Yeah. Of what Antonio really said. Yeah. Yeah. If he had said a life of moderation is never deviating from the middle course, then Mm -hmm. B would be better justified. Yeah, I agree. No, excellent point. I think just moving quickly, I'd keep it open. And then if something else came up, then I'd probably go back and say, wait a sec. Oh, yeah. The right answer doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be the best one. And this is a question that's in the first 10. My guess is that the wrong answers are really, really wrong. And Mm -hmm. so B is still the closest to what they're talking about. Even if it's not 100% technically exactly what Antonio said, you could still, it's probably the fairest one to say, hey, this is what you guys are arguing about. Yeah. C whether it is possible for a person to embrace other virtues along with moderation. Huh? (laughs) They, uh, other virtues like altruism. Okay. Maybe other virtues of spontaneity. Yeah. Altruism or spontaneity. Maybe. Yeah. The problem is it's still too broad because. Yeah. I mean, just neither of them even uh, say anything about other virtues. So, well, if you look at spontaneity as a virtue, maybe Antonio. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. So maybe Antonio says he might be saying no to, to some see. virtues. Yeah. But he doesn't address all other virtues. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's going to be hard to <laughs> make a case for them arguing about C. Yeah. D. How often a person ought to deviate from the middle course in life so antonio would say well not how often but i think antonio would say you should deviate at least sometime and i think marla would say the same thing yeah it seems to me that they both are saying a non-zero amount of deviation right some yep some yeah. which means one or more and they don't they're not arguing about the specifics of how often you should deviate 
or not if one of them said zero and the other one said sometimes then you might be able to pick d mm-hmm. but they're both saying now nah, you should deviate sometimes so i don't see how we could pick d yeah e whether it is desirable for people to be mo- moderately spontaneous mm. I like how they use the word moderate and spontaneous together. Yeah, I mean, that's just, a, that's one that's just like all, it's just the words. It's got the yeah. words. They're there, but they're just arranged in a way that it just doesn't really make sense based on what they were talking about. Yeah, they're trying to like conflate two ideas, moderation and spontaneity together. Moderately spontaneity. Spont- <laughs> spontaneity why can't i say this word right now (laughs) spontaneous jeez okay anyways (laughs) they're combining those two words and so it's just like uh i remember you saying once a long time ago it's kind of like putting words in a blender yeah uh, absolutely and then just a bunch of mush just comes out and it definitely catches people who are like i was laughing about this either last time or the time before where people are just like well, it says moderately. Antonio yeah. said spontaneity, sponta- spontaneous. It says that. It says the words. So yeah. I, I just picked it because it says it says moderate, spontaneous right here. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, yeah, I know. But what is moderately spontaneous? <laughs> Antonio never said anything about being moderately spontaneous. Also, yeah. not to mention Marla never mentioned spontaneity at all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's pretty bad laughable so it looks like it's b yeah even though it shouldn't say requires there yeah but whatever it's still the best answer um good test takers everybody would get this one right uh even though b is imperfect um you know everybody who's scoring 160 or 165 is definitely getting this one right so i can't really argue with the question that much yeah, you know, sometimes I have these conversations with uh, people who are who are doing pretty well. They're understanding what's going on with the test uh, in a lot of cases and in a lot of different questions. And we'll have a, a long discussion either in class or in tutoring about why the correct answer has problems. And I will be conceding a lot of the problems that they point out. Like, yeah. Yeah, the passage never said that directly, or uh, yeah, that word is a little bit different from the word that they used. Uh, you know, you got a good point there. <laughs> but at the end of you know all of that discussion, it's like, well, can you tell me the answer that you chose? Because you can't just pick at the correct answer until it's dead. You have to like explain why you chose the answer you chose and the problem there is i guarantee you going to be worse than all of the problems that you've mentioned combined yeah it's i'm laughing because i have that same i have that same discussion with people it's usually people who are scoring like 160s but not yet 170s yeah yeah. And they like to argue with the test and get so upset about it and just say that B has to be conclusively wrong because of that one word. Mm-hmm. And they will just perseverate on it, just like they'll never shut up about it. And, and they just can't let go of it. And it's like, all right, dude, but here's the thing. 
anybody who's scoring 170 would have got that right. Yeah. It's not that hard. It's the best answer. It's just it's just the best answer. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. There's something wrong with it. I totally agree with you. But what else are you going to pick? Mm-hmm. Really? You're going to make a case here for A or C or D or E over B? Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to try to do? And if you just keep coming back to, well, B has this problem, I, I know. I know it does. I know it does. <laughs> but it's the best of a bad lot. Mm-hmm. And you should just accept that that's the instructions is to pick the best answer. It doesn't say pick the perfect answer. It says pick the best answer. Yeah. They need to apply that those same reasoning skills to the, the answer they chose. Right. Right. It's I know. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> sure. B has something wrong with it and it could be a lot wrong with it, but it's not as wrong as these other horrible answers. Look what you pick. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you, are you really saying that they're arguing about how often a person ought to deviate from the middle course? It's just yeah. far, that's like so far fetched. That's like not even close. So, yeah, you know, B here is, B is definitely the, the best, the closest, the best fit. And you just got to pick it and move on. Hey, can we go, can we rewind for a second here and go back to the word you said? Now I can't even remember it. It started with P. Perseveration. Perseveration. Yeah. People perseverate. Yes. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah. You know what, Ben? This is the second time you've asked me about this word. I was wondering if it's that word I asked you about when I was in Costa Rica. I realized, well, when I said, when I said it, I was like, oh shit, that's that same annoying word that Ben asked me about last time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think perseverate. Obviously I, have learned it and I use it all the time now. Oh, you do? I wouldn't believe it. Oh no, no, I don't. I have no clue. So perseverate. Yeah. Can you remind me? This this is when Anne Levine was on the show, right? Yeah. that I do remember that conversation. It's, um, so it's a lot like persevere. But okay. persevere has like positive connotations and perseverate has negative connotations. Ooh, I like that. I mean, mm. I'm I mean, I will start using it now. I'm not a I'm not a linguist by any means, but um no, like when um if like people who have uh you know some sort of like mental illness or if something really bad happened to you in your life and you you get upset about it and people would say that you are perseverating on or perseverating about uh, that one issue. Like you can't let go of it. That's what perseverate means. So I'm reading the definition here. It says to repeat or prolong an action, thought, or utterance after the stimulus that prompted it has ceased. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like repetitive thoughts that you can't get rid of. Yeah. That would be that would be perseverating. Or continuing to repeatedly ask me that this says required and that makes it hundred percent wrong. And I'm like, no, because (laughs) I've already granted you the point that it is an imperfect answer choice and that our job is to pick the best one. And then when you say again, but it says requires (laughs) (laughs) when we keep doing laps and laps and laps of the same exact thing, that's perseveration. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Cool. (laughs) Please, all listeners, start using perseverate in your everyday speech. Yeah, it was it was more popular in the uh, 1930s and 1970s, and it's time for a revival. Well, starting here with the thinking LSAT. So, do I sound like a grandpa or something when I say that? Is there a, a more modern 
word because I really do hate using super fancy words when I could have used something easier. I've complained before about people who say utilize when you could just say use instead. Sure. What about needle? Would that be the same thing? Needle. No. Well, to me, needle is like when you're intentionally trying to bother someone. Okay. Mm -hmm. You'd be needling them. Oh, here we have we have what you said earlier. Perseverate. Most people who perseverate suffer from a brain injury disorder or illness. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) And the word is most often used as a medical term. Uh, it's almost always as if, it's almost as if someone who perseverates gets stuck on a word or gesture and can't stop repeating it. Oh, great. Nathan. Now we might not want to use this word if this is the context of its most common usage, but I intended it to have a little (laughs) bit of stink on it. I mean, I was trying to say that people are perseverating on this where, where they, I really do believe that they should, you know, let it go. And if yeah. they have to see a medical professional in order to help them do that, that's that's there's no shame in that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they have other words here. They say like reiterate, but that has a more neutral connotation, yeah. I think. Repeat, restate, retell, ingeminate. Never heard that mm. before. Have you heard that? No. So. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of a better one then with this negative. Although this definitely sounds like it has to do with a uh, mental illness, well, as opposed to. Yeah, I didn't not mean that. I mean, I I kind of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's that's good to know. Yeah. All right. So you're saying that some of your students have a mental illness? Oh, many, many, <laughs> many. We should we one of these days we uh, should start. We should tell some of our stories of our. Um, craziest students over the years you know obviously not naming names or anything but i've been doing this long enough that i have had some pretty weird folks in my uh in my classes have i mentioned the one where they asked if the answer cue is at the back of the test (laughs) oh (laughs) you mean on the actual day of the test on the official test (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. It, it was it was in the middle. So we were about to start a proctored exam. And this person looks up and they say, will the official test have an answer key like we have today? And I looked at her and I was like, you know, I thought she was joking at first. And then she had a very sincere look on her face. So I was like, mm, no, no, it won't. But then my next question is like, why? <laughs> What's your plan? You know? Yeah, I had the. The kid who asked if he would be allowed to <laughs> not only stand up during the test, he's, he's, he thought that he would perform better on the test if he were allowed to stand. Mm, okay. Standing <laughs> desk is a trend. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. I'm at a standing desk right now, actually. Oh, you are? Wow. Yeah, I love it. That's, I go to Starbucks all the time to work, too, because Starbucks has high tables and I can stand at, mm. I can stand at the high tables at Starbucks. Um, mm. So I'm that guy. He wanted to stand during the test, but furthermore, he asked in all seriousness, he asked me if he was go if he would be allowed to read aloud during the test. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so he wants to stand up and read aloud while he's taking the actual LSAT. 
Yeah. And uh, I informed him that no, he would not. <laughs> Although nowadays, maybe he could get special accommodations for that. Yeah. Under the new uh, legal framework, you might be able to get that. I just can't think through this unless I talk out loud. Yep. I need a doctor to write me a note so I can do that. Yeah. No, that's good stuff. So do you have any exciting plans for this week? Yeah, I'm actually uh, playing golf today. I have a practice round today for a tournament that I'm playing in tomorrow. And then I'm going to Santa Barbara on Friday because I'm doing a promotional, uh, like a free uh, Logic Games class at UC Santa Barbara on Friday. By the way, listeners, if you uh, are interested in having me come and yell at you and your friends, um, on campus, I love doing that sort of thing. And I, I kind of, I go out of my way actually to, to do little promotional classes on campus. So if you're part of a pre-law group and, um, you know, especially if you're in Southern California or anywhere in California, really, and you'd like to have me come visit your class, uh, yeah, send me an email, Nathan at foxlsat.com. And I would love to, uh, come visit you guys. Do you do that same sort of thing, Ben? Not usually. I should probably do that more. You don't need to because you're killing it so hard in D.C. <laughs> it is kind of nice to be in D.C. There's a, a lot of people who want to go to law school, even if they're not pl- planning to practice law, you know, because everybody on the Hill uh, has a J.D. who's anybody. And so a lot of people who work on the Hill who don't have a J.D. are saying to themselves, look, if I want to go further, then... I got to do that. And so there's just a lot of demand for LSAT in this area. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, that uh, that must be nice. I'm here in L.A. where everyone cares about is um, CrossFit and uh, (laughs) yoga and green juice and auditions. So, yeah, yeah, it's not quite the same uh, sort of a market down here. You could uh, branch out. You could have like Fox LSAT next to your (laughs) Fox juice stand. (laughs) And like during the day, do yoga, and then at night, do LSAT. Have, right? I, they could uh, take the test or take the class in t- while they're in tanning beds. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'd like to see you doing yoga. I think that would that should be your new venture. Yoga, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there'd be a lot of profanity. People go there to get like relaxed. And, I just bend over. I bend over to stretch, and I'm like, fuck. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. Now I'm going to be waiting for that. Okay, I'll work on it. Please. How about you? You doing anything fun? Uh, no. I just actually realized it was a stupid question to ask you because it's kind. I mean, no. I'm interested in what you had to do, but I didn't have any response myself. So sometimes I'll do this in class. I'll ask people, what you know, I don't know, whatever. Like some, what do you guys eat for breakfast or whatever? (laughs) Then people like, what do you eat for breakfast? I'm like, oh, actually, I don't, you know, whatever. Like nothing or I yogurt one thing i do like to ask is what people's uh, celebrity crushes oh <laughs> so so during during the break i'll say you got to know your neighbor's name and their celebrity crush and most people's reaction is sort of like what i don't have one i'm like shut up everyone has one you don't have to tell us though but most people say it and you get a lot of interesting nominations sometimes you know most you get the typical things uh george clooney that would be mine yeah, <laughs> I thought it would be actually, which is why I said it yeah. first. But you get a lot of known people now. And then every now and then people throw out some old school names, you know, like, oh, uh, what's that guy from uh, The Hunt for Red October? It was Sean Connery, right? Uh, the best uh, 
James Bond or whatever. And then the other day, though, I got someone who said the, the I mean, w- granted, we are in Washington, D.C., so we're inside the Beltway, which is 495. But anyways, uh, one person said a sec- the Secretary of Labor. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who, who is the secretary of labor? I have no idea, you know? And and people are like looking this person up on labor.gov or whatever the, the website is. And, and someone else is like, oh, yes, he is a hot, hot man. Wow. I was like, who is this guy? But then last night, uh, people did not agree. I still haven't looked at the picture. But uh, you get a lot of um, uh, random stuff uh, when you ask that question, which is fun. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to have to steal that one. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. And then what do you say when they ask you? Uh, you know, I, 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 I tend to be impressed by uh, Emily Blunt. Oh. Yeah. Excellent choice. Cool. Wait a minute. Was Emily Blunt in that movie Girl on a Train? Yeah, she is in the movie that just came out. I'm not going to – I'm probably not going to watch that. I, I ended up watching – Go ahead and – I accidentally went and saw that movie. That movie sucked. It was dumb. Don't bother. Don't waste oh, your time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Girl on a Train sucks. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> I, I feel like it's like one of those, you know, that it's like uh, what Fifty Shades of Grey. Like these books become popular, and you're like, what? Why are they? Po- I don't understand them. I don't understand why they're the worldwide phenomena. And then they make movies for them. It's kind of like Gone Girl, and you kind of finish the movie, you're like, this is just, I, I don't understand. Gone Girl. I liked the book, but I thought the movie sucked because I hate Ben Affleck. Yeah. Yeah. You hate Ben Affleck. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, don't see the accountant. I saw that and. It, it was just kind of, it, it was kind of weird. I'll, by the end of the movie, I felt like he was like Batman. He to me, he might be a great director or whatever writer, even. But I, when he his, his acting, I just I can't I just can't take it. I, he makes me roll my eyes just the second he walks onto camera. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he does. I just can't buy it. Yeah. I what I did also see by the way I did see uh, Deepwater Horizon. Oh yeah, that has good reviews. I I liked it. I thought it was a good movie. It was interesting. I mean, it's just about uh, you know the people who were on the rig, and just the whole like what goes on on the rig and what happened and how crazy it was. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a good recommendation. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, make sure you email us, help at thinkingelsat.com, and we will talk to you soon. Great. See ya. See ya.